From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In the days leading up to the second impeachment of Donald Trump, Washington is divided as ever over what are the facts and how to move forward. Ilhan Omar has not suggested that leaders of Congress be executed. Uh, Ilhan Omar has not engaged in the kind of fantasies about school shootings not actually being real. And while some cheer the Biden administration's first steps to fix the broken U.S. immigration system, millions more refugees, asylum seekers, and the undocumented languish in limbo. Respect, dignity, safety for all of us. From rolling back the Muslim, African, asylum, and refugee bans, to reuniting families, ending deportations, to freeing people from ICE, we're calling on the president and Congress to pass legislation that serves all of us. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for February 5th, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. In D.C. these days, everything, even what is truth and what can benefit American people is up for debate and colored deeply by a partisan political divide. After entertaining a Republican proposal of less than one third the size, Democrats are preparing to use the budget reconciliation process to pass the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package. That reconciliation process requires only a majority vote by Democrats in the Senate rather than 60 votes. After urging by Senate Budget Chairman Bernie Sanders, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced Monday that they had started the process by filing a joint budget resolution for fiscal year 2021. Progressives are warning Biden not to include a Republican proposal that would means test the $1,400 payments to individual Americans and restrict payments only to those earning less than $50,000 as polls indicate that 78% of all Americans, including majority of Republicans, support the $1,400 payments. Another 1.2 million Americans made new claims for all unemployment benefits for the week ending January 30th. And this week, the U.S. passed the grim milestone of 450,000 deaths from coronavirus. Representative Rokana of California told the Marianne Williamson podcast that the U.S. does not have to choose between economic abundance and morality. In most developing countries, it's a very difficult choice because you have to choose between investing in education and investing in health care or having economic development. The amazing thing with the United States is we don't have to make that choice. We actually have so much wealth generation that we could have political justice without the difficult choices that developing nations face. We just are unwilling to do it. In the latest fallout from the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, on Thursday, former President Trump rejected a request from House Democrats that he testify at his impeachment trial that is slated to begin on Tuesday, February 9th. 
House Democrats also voted Thursday to remove QAnon conspiracy theorist Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia from her seat on the House Education and Budget Committees. This is after news reports revealed that videos and social media posts by Greene advocated the assassination of Democratic Party leaders and claimed that mass school shootings in which children were murdered were staged to curtail gun rights. Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota spoke before the vote. This is about whether it is okay to hold an assault rifle next to members' heads in a campaign ad and incite death threats against them. This is about whether it is okay to encourage the murder of the Speaker of the House. As a survivor of civil conflict and civil war, I know political violence and political rhetoric does not go away on its own. This is about whether or not we will continue to be a peaceful and functioning democracy. Democrats voted to remove Green from the committees after Republicans declined to censure or discipline Green for her comments. I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, several dramas unfolded on Capitol Hill this week. As Republicans rallied around Representative Green of Georgia, they attempted to create a false equivalency between Green's advocacy for violence and her history of racist and anti-Semitic remarks with the 2019 tweet by Representative Ilhan Omar about the financial influence of the Israel lobbying group APAC in Congress. So, you know, I know we talked last week about uh, what's happening with the Republican Party, but what was your reaction when you saw that drama unfold this week? Well, obviously, the attempt to drag Congresswoman Omar into this fray is disgusting and obscene. It's a textbook definition of a false equivalence. And it's even a shame and unfortunate that we have to bring this up because it should be intuitively obvious to the most casual of observers. Well, it just occurred to me that, you know, just as the Republicans are constantly being caught in the trap that you mentioned last week of embracing their far right, despite how far right they get, it seemed to me that this week the Democrats were also caught in a bind by their habit to paint criticism of the Israel lobby and the Israel lobby's money as anti-Semitic, that this habit of theirs came back to bite them. It certainly did. And I'm afraid to say that that particular issue is going to come back to bite them once more. What I'm suggesting is that if you look at the staffing of the National Security Council at the White House, there's been a downsizing of the specialists focused on what we call the Middle East, and an exponential increase of those focusing on the so-called Indo-Pacific, which is shorthand for China. And that's a reflection of Mr. Biden's stated aim to put climate change at the center of national security, which means downplaying the impact of fossil fuels, which means downplaying the malign and malignant influence that 
not only Israel, but Saudi Arabia often has on U.S. foreign policy, and reference here the fact that Mr. Biden is trying to abort certain arms deals to both uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as we speak, reference here the rather startling news that Benjamin Netanyahu has signed on as one of his chief advisors, a hatchet man for Breitbart News, the once home of Steve Bannon, Mr. Trump's right hand at one time, and that does not bode well with regard to relations with the White House since Breitbart News had made a specialty of savaging not only Joseph Biden but Barack Obama during his tenure. I should also mention that this attempt to somehow reposition the so-called Middle East in terms of U.S. foreign policy will have impact if it's executed in terms of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, You saw that Mr. Biden has suggested that the United States will be curbing its aid to the Saudi genocidal war in Yemen. You should also know in this context that a special envoy for Iran has been appointed, speaking of Robert Malley, who is a particular whipping boy of the Zionist lobby. Uh, You may recall that Mr. Malley has roots, believe it or not, in North Africa, Algeria to be specific, and he is viewed as one of the more dovish members of the U.S. ruling elite when it comes to the question of that part of the world. So once again, it seems to me that if you add all this up, there's going to be a rocky road uh, that Mr. Biden embarks upon if he seeks to downplay or otherwise reorient U.S. foreign policy towards that part of the world, speaking of the, quote, Middle East, unquote. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Speaking to NBC News this week, uh, Blinken said that the U.S. would be willing to go back to the Iran nuclear deal if Iran does the same. And so they're kind of creating like this chicken and egg situation because the U.S. long ago left the the Iran nuclear deal and Iran has been basically saying, OK, if, if you're going to keep these onerous sanctions on us, these murderous sanctions on us, we're not going to continue to comply with this deal And so now the United States is acting as if Iran needs to comply in some kind of way when it's the United States that hasn't complied. So I don't know how that fits into the narrative you are spinning, but it seems like Blinken is not doing any favors to Iran. Well, it depends on if that was a negotiating ploy on his part or if he's serious. And if he's serious, that means that the United States is not serious about focusing like a laser beam on China which is their stated goal and ambition. I should also say that the EU3, that is to say Britain, France, Germany, which had a hand in negotiating that nuclear deal with Iran, is going to be pressuring Washington to re-enter the deal, and it would not be advisable for Mr. Biden to ignore the EU3, particularly since relations with the European Union have become ever more complicated since uh, Mr. Trump ran roughshod over their basic and fundamental interests. And if this were a normal country, quote-unquote, the big news of the week would be that Admiral Charles Richard, 
who is a leading military thinker and leading military figure in the United States, basically suggested that going forward, there could be a war with Russia and China. Once again, if they're really serious about focusing on China, which is their stated ambition, and if they're really serious about downsizing the importance of fossil fuels, and Iran is all about the petroleum, it's all about the oil, it seems to me that it it makes eminent good sense for them to re-enter the nuclear deal. Okay, well, there's a lot to keep watch on here in D.C., and I'm glad that you're watching with us from Houston. <laughs> I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. This week, President Biden signed three executive orders on immigration, one that will launch a task force to reunite families separated under the Trump administration. Trump separated more than 5,500 families and parents of more than 600 children have still not been located. Another order will begin a review of Trump's so-called Remain in Mexico program that has forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to remain in squalid camps in Mexico while their cases are processed. And a third order will create a review of Trump policies that created hurdles to get green cards or become a naturalized American citizen. And will review the Trump rule that allowed officials to deny green cards to immigrants who use public assistance. On the other hand, just this week, as Biden signed these new orders, ICE agents were still deporting people. Paul Pirillus, a 40-year-old man from New York State, was just deported to Haiti where he has never lived. This week's executive actions followed several actions signed on the first day of Biden's presidency, one of which rescinded the Muslim and African bans. More on immigration after headlines. The Biden administration also set as one of its goals the reopening of the nation's schools for in-person learning within 100 days. And that goal is continuing to cause conflict with whether schools are safe. D.C. teachers were scheduled to return to classrooms this week. Thomas O'Rourke has the latest. For the first time in almost a year, D.C. public schools opened their doors to in-person teaching and learning at dozens of schools across the district Tuesday, February 2nd. Though the majority of DCPS's 52,000 students and 5,000 teachers are still using virtual learning, a significant number of students, between 10 and 20 percent, are scheduled and expected to return to in-person learning this week. WTU President Elizabeth Davis said in a statement, quote, Teachers want to go back to in-school learning when they are assured that these buildings are safe and the well-being of staff and students are of the utmost importance. That said, if DCPS continues to refuse to work with us to ensure the safety of school facilities, we must continue to discuss ways to protect our health and that of our students. That could include a strike authorization vote later this week, end quote. Nonetheless, President Davis said she had urged every teacher recalled to a classroom to return on Tuesday, acknowledging DCPS's authority to demand their return. 
An arbitrator last Monday issued a ruling granting most of DCPS's request to begin in-person learning, saying that the vast majority of documented violations to the DCPS WTU Memo of Understanding have been resolved, though two schools, Coolidge High School and Watkins Elementary, were ordered to remain shut by the arbitrator because of COVID safety issues. The WTU continues to dispute these claims of safety and has asked for additional school-by-school walkthroughs, noting that DCPS had okayed the opening of the aforementioned two schools. I spoke to Steve Donkin, a veteran high school science teacher and WTU activist, about his thoughts concerning the situation. It's true that in D.C. it is against the law for public employees to strike or, you know, and the law also says that uh, if they're aware of a strike that they need to take actions to speak out against it, to prevent it. But this, I think the mood of a lot of the members is that, first of all, that law itself is an unjust law that needs to be challenged. And, you know, secondly, this is an issue of people's safety. It's a a community safety, and it's a moral stance that we're taking. It's not, you know, that we don't want to work. You know, we're not, teachers are not lazy. They're some of the hardest working people I know are teachers. But we, again, we want it to be safe for our students and safe for the families and safe for the staff. Charter schools in the district continue, by and large, to practice distance learning with the earliest projected returns to in-person learning calling for late February or early March. In Fairfax and Loudoun counties of Virginia, school boards on Tuesday voted to phase in in in-person learning over the next five to six weeks, with all students expected to return to in-person learning by mid-March. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. The community organized seeking justice for Kwame Okran shot to death by Gaithersburg, Maryland police, turned their attention this week to the release of the long-awaited report from Montgomery County's Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. Key among the 87 recommendations in the report are eliminating armed police in schools, adopting a model for mental health professionals or social workers to respond to mental health crises, and switching to fully or expanded automated traffic enforcement to reduce the instance of armed police officers stopping motorists. We will link to the report at onthegroundshow.org. And as more people across the United States are facing food insecurity during the pandemic and economic crisis, a coalition of community organizations in Montgomery County, Maryland, is celebrating a victory to preserve the county's 93,000-acre agricultural reserve for farming instead of for a proposed industrial solar farm. The Montgomery County Council voted January 26th to allow solar development on areas of the reserve that don't include productive farming soil. Carolyn Taylor of Montgomery Countryside Alliance said of the final plan, quote, this makes room for solar while protecting the land that sustains us, end quote. According to the Alliance, 60% of the farmers working in the agricultural reserve lease the land they work on. Three county farmers, David Scott Jr., Tanya Spantala, and Lee Langstaff, spoke on a video produced by the Alliance about the value of the agricultural reserve. I'm a third-generation farmer. 
The farm itself is 275 acres, but we lease the rest of it from various other landowners. I just really enjoy doing it, and I've been doing it for 30 years now. Um, my name is Tanya Spandler. I'm a small-scale producer and owner of Passion to Seed Gardening, situated in the Ag Reserve. I lease about three acres from a family farm, which I'm actively farming on, and I've been farming on this piece of land for the past five years. I'm very grateful and appreciative to be a resident of this county that recognizes the value of its food producers. We are incredibly fortunate to have an agricultural zone so close in to a metropolitan area that can produce real benefits for the whole region, not just for the people who live here. And it may be in the, in the form of food, but it also is in the form of environmental benefits, clean water, clean air, carbon sequestration. The Alliance said that farmers are leasing land for an average of $90 to $100. $20 an acre per year, while county landowners are being offered $5,000 an acre to sell their property. According to the Alliance, Maryland is losing 20,000 acres of farmland every year. And finally, in culture and media, in this week in history, on February 1st, 1960, four black students in Greensboro, North Carolina, sat down and ordered coffee at a segregated whites-only lunch counter inside a Woolworths store. They were refused service, but did not leave. Instead, they waited all day. The scene was repeated over the next few days with protests spreading to other southern states, resulting in the eventual arrest of more than 1,600 persons for participating in sit-ins that led to desegregation of Woolworths stores, other stores, and public accommodations across the country. In actions today in 2021, the Center for Protest Law and Litigation is demanding that police and government officials at the site of the Line 3 pipeline expansion in Aiken County, Minnesota, and the city of Palisade immediately ceased efforts to obstruct and stop an event scheduled for Saturday, February 6th on local public parkland consisting of peaceful, free speech, educational, and religious activities intended to provide information to the public about just transitions for a sustainable future and the extreme dangers the pipeline poses to the community. Local officials have directly threatened and retaliated against organizers of the event, who include Native American environmental justice activist Winona LaDuke. And finally, as predicted, the banning of Donald Trump on Twitter was followed by the deplatforming or demonetizing of progressive content producers on the left. Journalist Caitlin Johnstone reports that progressive commentators Graham Elwood, The Progressive Soapbox, The Convo Couch, and Frank Analysis have all received notifications from YouTube that their videos are no longer permitted to earn money through the platform's various monetization features. Ford Fisher, another respected journalist here in D.C., who produces content for his platform News to Share, has also been demonetized. Johnstone says that the producers are given no explanation for these decisions beyond the vague claim that quote, your channel is not in line with our YouTube partner program policies, end quote, due to what is termed harmful content. Fisher said that after he criticized YouTube's takedown of his raw footage from the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, 
YouTube demonetized his entire channel. And this is the second time YouTube, owned by Google, has taken away Fisher's ability to earn money from his content. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. today, like the time that has passed, the memories and occasions missed, including graduation ceremonies, weddings, the welcoming of new grandchildren, and the constant pain and emptiness can never be erased. However, the hope for a brighter future has finally become a reality, and all of us are here today to celebrate that reality. (laughs) 
Four years ago, on this day, Trump passed the Muslim ban. And since four years after the Muslim ban, immigrant communities stated President Biden a clear message. Take action for all of us. Within one week of the new administration taking office, in four years since the ban was signed, immigrant and Muslim organizations from all across the country are here. Raise their voices. We are here to take action across the way from the White House demanding justice, respect, dignity, safety for all of us. From rolling back the Muslim, African, asylum, and refugee bans to reuniting families, ending deportations, to freeing people from ICE, we're calling on the President and Congress to pass legislation that will include all of us, that represents all of us, and that serves all of us. We're introducing our policy North Star, the roadmap to freedom, to show what we'll work towards. And the first thing Congress can do is include immigrant essential workers in any COVID relief package, because that is what is fair and that is what is right. Round of applause for all our essential workers out here today and around the country, please. Just a couple more things that I want to highlight that came out this week before we introduce our incredible speakers. Yesterday, unfortunately and shamefully, a judge in Texas has blocked the moratorium for 14 days. So the fight is very much alive as we gather today. The action of the judge makes it important for Congress to take action. So we are demanding Congress to take action on this. Today, the roadmap to freedom resolution will be introduced in Congress by Representative Jayapal. We have four sister actions happening in Washington State, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Denver. It is going to be an amazing day today for our communities. Now, time to introduce our incredible speakers. First up, Nana, who is the chair of the Council on American, Council on American Islamic Relations, Maryland member and a student at Howard University, all the way from Sudan. Welcome, Nama. Can you guys hear me through this mask? Okay, great, because I'm not going to take it off. Um, My name is Nama Muhammad Hamza Nayan, Osman Hamid Hamidan Suleiman Abu Bakr Bagga. And when I stand here today, I represent not just myself, but my country, Sudan. One of the most beautiful and plentiful countries in North Africa. We are both black and Arab, and I represent a lineage of people that fought very hard for me to stand here today. In 2017, Donald Trump deemed my home and country and family a den of terror and too dangerous to allow entry to the United States. Shock, surprise, fear, anger, and frustration. These and many, many more emotions ran amok when newly elected President Donald J. Trump made true of the anti-Muslim rhetoric he promised during his campaign. Islam hates us, he insisted, as he introduced a new ugly and normalized wave of Islamophobia, proving that it's not Islam that hates us, but the U.S. that hates Muslims. Now, shock, fear, anger, even frustration were anticipated as they seemed to maintain the driving forces in the president's campaign. Nothing, however, could have prepared me, my family, my community, my individuals, or the communities of the other countries named in the Muslim ban for the crushing claustrophobia to follow. 
The crushing claustrophobia that came from being even more of a target in the place that you called home made it difficult to breathe. As an immigrant, as a Muslim, and as a Black woman, to exist in the United States is to perpetually be torn between two cultures and trying to develop an identity that balances both. There is always the insecurity that you don't belong or aren't wanted. The same way that a bully can make you feel so small by exploiting those traits you always worry about, the Muslim ban was a manifestation of my insecurities, revealing the truth behind my paranoia that I truly was wanted and in fact blatantly targeted. Now, previously, I had lived in my bubble of comfortable diversity in Montgomery County, existing outside the scope of blatant hatred. Of course, I've had my brushes with Islamophobia, served cold with a sprinkle of xenophobia, even a tall glass of sexism, if you will. But I wasn't prepared when my sister came home frustrated because a ticking sound was heard across the classroom and her teacher walked straight to her desk and searched her backpack. As the students, all of the students in the classroom were pointing to the left side of the classroom, telling her that's where the ticking sound is coming from. She came all the way to my sister, who wears hijab, who's proud of her culture, and searched her backpack for the sound. The day of the inauguration, my aunt called to remind us about the last inauguration. Donald Trump's first days of office sent her scrambling to get tickets to return to America, along with my grandfather. My aunt, fearful of being split from her husband, my grandfather leaving home in fear that he'd be shut out from the medical care that he needed here. Families split apart. Children had to phone their condolences for the loss of our cousins, grandparents, our parents, even siblings. Not unlike the present difficulties everyone is facing during this pandemic, there was a sense of hopelessness in the pseudo-quarantine between families on American soil and families in Iran, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, Yemen, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Myanmar, Nigeria, and Tanzania. More than 135 million people were living and affected by the original Muslim ban, which was then increased to affect even more people. Although there was a 40% increase in visas issued to North Koreans, it became very clear to us that the threat on American soil was not founded on the fear of the unknown, as Trump wanted to tell us, but on the ignorant hatred of the followers of a religion whose countries were too torn and too weak to oppose the bullying that Donald Trump wanted to oppose on our countries, but we will not be bullied. We are not going to stand here and let a man who's so weak that he can't face his country bully us. Do we look like people who can be bullied? Do we look like people standing here that we can be bullied, that we can be made feel so small? No one can make us feel inferior without our consent. And every single insecurity that developed over the past 10 years was crushed simply by meeting and being around people like you. And that is so amazing. Last week ushered in a new administration, a new White House, and I pray a new dawn on the state of affairs in the United States. Welcome to regular racism. Of course, we can't rely on singular events, politicians, or even policies to be the ones that will usher change. That responsibility falls on us. It's only through consistent hard work consistent pressure and presence that we will truly be able to both reverse the damage and build fresh our homes in a nation that we have every right to be, exist and thrive on. Time and time again, our existence, our livelihoods, and our faith will be tested. And I pray that time and time again, we succeed with flying colors. Because truly, even at its ugliest, our diversity in color, culture, background, faith, and thought is what makes our nation beautiful. And we cannot stop fighting to preserve that. Thank you. Thank you, Nema, for that beautiful testimony. I know we have a lot of people to hear from, so I want to get right back to it. 
I want to introduce Anwar Amesh, who is from the Libyan American Alliance and her family in Libya and is directly impacted by the Muslim ban. Welcome, Anwar, everybody. Thank you. So four years ago today, the president of the United States signed an executive order that would separate my Libyan American family. Across almost 5,000 miles of constant power outages and poor connectivity, my grandfather, forced to sit on the sidelines, watched his children and grandchildren live their lives without him. He missed the graduations of his two oldest grandchildren from institutions that he would have never dreamed of attending and birth and the births and steps and words of his three youngest grandchildren in Ohio and Texas. In April, 2019, as war erupted in Tripoli, the distance became all the more painful. Amidst papers and examinations, I repeatedly paused to calculate the distance between the latest bombing and my grandfather's house. As I received my diploma, he sent pictures of smoke on the horizon. And as I returned here to where I grew up, I looked around me at all of the glittering institutions, institutions that I had believed in as a child that refused to offer my grandfather my uncles and my cousins' safety amidst the bombs. But as the bombs fell and the borders closed, immigrants and advocates across this country joined together and in fighting for family, transformed what it means. Family isn't just my grandfather or my uncles or my cousins. It's Doris, my friend, Harvard custodian and extraordinary TPS advocate. It's the undocumented, undocumented students I organized with, demanding more from the institutions that surrounded us. It's the English language learners I've tutored, the formerly incarcerated people I've learned from, and all others who have trusted me with their stories, each different in its composition, but identical in its desires. Because the truth is, family is all of us. Even after President Biden rescinded the Muslim ban, even as my mother is excitedly working to bring my blood family back together, my family of immigrants, undocumented and documented people, TPS holders, refugees and asylum seekers, incarcerated people, migrant workers, and all others seeking justice still has not been reunited. Rescinding the Muslim ban is the floor, not the ceiling. And if justice is going to be served, it has to be served for all of us. Today, I am here to stand up for my family. My family on this occupied and accosted land and in Tripoli and in Mogadishu and in Sana'a. On the border, in the detention center and on the picket line. Everyone aching for justice from a country that has denied it for far too long. I am your family. All of us are family. And this family, today and every day, fights together. Thank you. You are listening to some of those who spoke out at the All of Us rally for immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers 
held Wednesday, January 27th at the Washington Monument. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. On the ground, on the ground show.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, on February 2nd, President Biden signed three executive orders on immigration, one that will launch a task force to reunite families separated under the Trump administration. Trump separated more than 5,500 families, and parents of more than 600 children have still not been located. Another order will begin a review of Trump's so called Remain in Mexico program that has forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to remain in Mexico while their cases are processed. And a third order will create a review of Trump's policies that created hurdles to get green cards or become a naturalized American citizen, and will review the Trump rule that allowed officials to deny green cards to immigrants who use public assistance. This week's executive actions followed action signed on the first day of Biden's presidency that rescinded the Muslim and African bans which in the last segment you heard celebrated at that rally at the Washington Monument. It's a lot to wade through, but to help us sort it out, I'm joined by Ophelia Calderon, founding partner of Calderon Seguin based in Fairfax, Virginia, and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She also served as past president of the Hispanic Bar Association of Virginia. Welcome back to On the Ground, Ophelia. Thanks, Esther. Thanks for having me. Well, first, it seems these actions are creating a mixed bag for immigrants. You may have heard the joy of all those folks celebrating the end of the Muslim and African ban. But on the other hand, just this week, as Biden is signing these new orders, ICE is still deporting people, including Paul Perillus, a 40-year-old man just deported to Haiti, where he has never lived. And so what is your take on where the Biden administration is with immigration at this early stage of his administration? I mean, I think that the Biden administration is certainly, on the face of it anyway, they're ambitious to to the extent that I think that they want to make changes, or at least they're telling us that they want to make changes. We're really talking about potentially restoring us back to the place that we were four years ago and or hopefully making it better, right? I mean, it's just a tall order. The reality is is that immigration is is a really expansive topic and 
in the last four years under the Trump administration, there have been so many changes, so many obstacles, so many things that have happened. You know, I, I have to say that while I want change, I, I'm not surprised by the difficulties that the administration is facing in doing that. I mean, we're, we're like, a, we're not even a month in. Right. I mean, I understand that Trump signed like 400 actions related to immigration. And, you know, he had Stephen Miller there, who's this virulent, you know, anti-immigrant activist in the White House. Um, Also, on his first day, in addition to the rescinding the Muslim and African ban, there was a commitment to preserve and strengthen DACA, a revision of civil immigration enforcement priorities. And a 100-day pause on certain removals. I'm just kind of reading the language of the actions. That was day one. Yeah. There was an extension of deferred enforcement departure for Liberians, improved processing of Liberian Relief and Fairness Act applications, census inclusion of immigrants, termination of the border wall construction, And the Biden-Harris administration reform bill was sent to Congress, which ends the anti-immigrant language and Trump policies and creates new pathways to U.S. citizenship. So there was a lot there, right? A lot Uh, happened on day one. Right. A lot happened. I would also note that they also created the the deferred um, enforced departure they also gave to Venezuela on that day. No, there is a lot that happened. And I guess that's my point, right? I think the Biden administration has said a lot. I think that there are things that they've done and, you know, actually done. I mean, on the 100-day deportation moratorium, that was definitely the intent. You know, there was a lawsuit down in Texas and the judge on January 26th, so just like a week and a half ago, um, is the one that ordered deportations to continue. Right, right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that that battle in the courts. Right. And so that that is a, a legal battle that is continuing right now. So I right. suppose that is why Mr. Perillis, the the man, a 40 year old man from New York State was deported to Haiti where he's never even lived uh, under these continued deportations uh, from leftover from the Trump administration. So I noticed that the. Immigrant Law Center, in terms of uh, responding to those day one executive orders, said that the laws did not specifically address immigrants' access to health care and nutrition supports for those obtaining lawful immigration status under the bill. And the center says that the current law from the Trump administration denies many types of immigrants' access to programs leading to harmful effects, and I'm quoting their language, Uh, leading to harmful effects that have been profoundly exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic, in particular because of the high number of immigrants who are essential workers. So I'm wondering from your experience, you know, what what are some of these urgent issues confronting immigrants right now as this task force is being formed and this immigration reform law is, you know, months away from consideration or possible enactment? Yeah, that's like a multi-part question, obviously. It's kind of compound. Like the the issue of, for example, the bill that the Biden administration sent to Congress, again, a really ambitious bill that, you know, creates a pathway for many people to get citizenship. 
that, you know, uh, I think it'll be hard for us to predict which congressional members are going to be on board with this or not. I mean, ironically, I think in the last four years, immigration has definitely been presented as a polarizing topic, but that it is a polarizing topic that is, that, that's like, it's us against them, and us against them has been portrayed as the Democrats versus the Republicans. But the truth is, is that there are plenty of Republicans that are pro-immigration reform because they're pro-business, right? And so I'm not sure sure, I'm really not sure how that whole thing is going to fall out, right? I think people are going to want to make changes to, to it, fixes to it, and it's going to be tough for everybody to come to a compromise. I mean, I think in terms of, like, why we would want something like that, in terms of addressing, for example, this business of, like, healthcare or benefits that immigrants receive or don't receive, as it were, I mean, that's the thing about legalizing your workforce, right? I mean, when you legalize your workforce, for example, that means that your workforce is now eligible for employer-based healthcare and those type of benefits. The reality is is that immigrants, undocumented immigrants, have always been ineligible for certain benefits, right? And to some extent, I guess, that has made sense for us as a country, right? Because you're paying into a system and as a result of that system, you're receiving federal benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But the flip side of that, that's all about wanting an undocumented workforce that we don't have to pay for, right? right. Does that make sense? Right. You see where I'm going now? Yes. So, I mean, I think that's always been a challenge. That's not a new challenge, right? I mean, documenting our workforce because that's what they are so that they can get the same benefits as every other worker in this country is a priority. It's not that I have this opinion, but I would guess that, like, the contrary opinion to that or the contrary position would be that, you know, American workers don't always have access to those types of benefits. And, and that's probably a bigger question for us as a society at large. Like, why don't we provide health care for all of our workers, right? And including, and most importantly, our essential workers that provide us with services and products that we need to survive. So some things like the, the border wall were able to be ended with executive action. So I'm wondering what you think, you know, is possible passage of immigration reform, like so many other policies on the wish list of the Democrats, depend on ending the filibuster in the Senate? I think the answer is yes, if we're talking about comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, I think what we learned from the Trump administration, and I'm, I mean, I have to say kudos to Biden for following in those footsteps. What we learned from the Trump administration is that you can make a lot of changes very quickly using the executive order. But the reality is, is that the type of comprehensive immigration reform that we need in terms of dealing with the immigrant visa backlog, which is another thing that causes an us-them mentality within the conversation about um, immigration, creating new visas that reflect our economy, improving the system as it is, I think that does require congressional action, right? So it's one thing to affirm and preserve DACA. It's one thing to, as you say, like stop wasting money on a border wall that doesn't work. There's one thing to use the executive order to give people temporary relief, but for a long-term reform slash relief, yeah, I think we do need congressional action. Right. And I actually learned this week that even though Trump is the administration most cited in terms of these kinds of changes, I heard one expert point out that some of these harmful immigration policies were actually established under Bill Clinton. 
in terms of the Immigration Reform Act of, uh, I believe, 1996. So yes. so some of these things are really instituted in the law. And it, it takes, as you said, uh, an act of Congress or passage by Congress of things to undo that infrastructure. Well, I just thought of this. And how about the detention facilities and ICE? I understand that none of these acts, none of these laws being considered or reviewed are really addressing the whole or and also the 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 review of federal prisons are not really touching the the private prisons that are holding immigrants on the border. So what's your take on what needs to be done or in terms of of these private prisons that are detention facilities on the border? I'm, of course, very opposed to the private prison system uh, across the board, not just for immigration purposes. I mean, you know, detention for profit just is not, it's not a feel-good topic. So, I, I mean, I think a couple of things. I think, like, as you mentioned on day one, in addition to the 100-day moratorium on deportations, there was also a, a requirement that DHS create new civil enforcement policies and priorities, right? Um, and I think that's significant, Right. The idea that, like, listen, we don't need to detain every single person that we know that is undocumented here. And we are actually already seeing the results of that. I mean, within like weeks, there were people being released from various detention facilities. I think one way of handling the question of detention is to have a better policy in place about who we want to detain and who should be a priority. Because at the end of the day, not only is detention harmful to the person being detained, but it's harmful to their family members who are potentially U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents of the United States. But it's also, we the taxpayer are paying for that on a regular basis. Right. And then there's the other side, which I think needs to happen, which is a better look at what the government contract is between all of the government contracts, I guess, between these private prison facilities and ICE. Right. And you obviously, when looking at that, you want to make sure that if we were going to continue, which I oppose, but if we were going to continue to use private prisons for immigration detention, whoever's being detained in the United States of America needs to be detained in a humane and legal manner. Right. And of course, yeah, we haven't even touched the issue of ICE itself, which the advocates that I've spoken to want to abolish. But we can save that because, you know, this is a conversation that will continue on. And I will definitely be back in touch with you as this administration continues with these proposed changes and the long term changes that they would like to make. I've been speaking with Ophelia Calderon, founding partner of Calderon Seguin based in Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you for joining me today, Ophelia. Thank you, Esther. And these calls for justice for all of our immigrant brothers and sisters will be the last word for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke and Professor Gerald Horn for their contributions to the show. At onthegroundshow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us, and support us. You can also go on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow to support us and like us on Facebook and Twitter at onthegroundshow. Our new podcast is On the Ground, W. Esther Averm, and you can subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we play this hour included Moss Street Fighter and Claire de Lune by Kamasi Washington, 
Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcellos and the Bush Dancers, Pata Pata by Miriam Makiba, and the Liberation Song by Navasha Dea. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.